God moved the heart of a pagan king and a settled people to do something specific for his glory. To see that through, these people had to uproot their families and make a significant sacrifice. And sometimes that's what God calls us to do. And he doesn't promise to make it easy. He calls us actually back to our brokenness because often the glory of God is most revealed where our lives have been the most damaged. Renovation projects always take longer and cost more than we anticipate or budget for, right? If you've ever done a home renovation project, you know that to be true. Doing renovations is hard work, rebuilding is hard work, restoration after a flood or a disaster takes years. And sometimes that happens to us physically, relationally, emotionally, and spiritually. Rebuilding and renovation in our hearts and in our lives and our spirits is no different than the physical. It's just not always as obvious. Now, one of the tools we've started using here at Gospel Chapel is a program called Freedom Session. You can find out more about Freedom Session at uh, freedomsession.com, all one word. There you'll find information about how to uh, how to go through this process of really kind of examining the foundations of your life, your hurts, your hang-ups, uh, the whys behind why you maybe re- react to things the way you do and the struggles you're having in day-to-day life. There's online video teaching. You get, get together with a group of three or four people and do this together. That's the best context to do this in. You can order workbooks off of the uh, website or uh, contact me at the church office for that. Uh, And that's a great way to start growing because in many ways, we all need to take a look at the interior of our lives and find out how God wants to rebuild us and renovate us for his glory. Turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter one. We're going to be in the book of Ezra for a little bit here. And it's kind of a, uh, uh, this next month is, it kind of fits well uh, because Ezra is about the end of exile and a new beginning for God's people back in Judah. And so it's fitting that this kind of falls uh, on, on this New Year's Day, Ezra chapter 1. Every first message of the new year often speaks to our hopes that this new year is going to be better than the last and there's an, a sense of expectation of what could be. And after the last three years, boy, I think we really want just a year with less drama. But unfortunately, that's, as Ben said, we can't guarantee anything. Life has no guarantees. Imagine what it must have been like for the Jewish people when Cyrus became king of Babylon and issued a decree that They could return to Judah and rebuild the temple of Yahweh after 70 years in exile. I mean, we've been through three years of kind of topsy-turvy. Imagine 70 years of exile. Imagine what that must have been like when he said, you can go home now. The exile is officially over. It's a new day and... And God had proclaimed this through the prophets that the exile would happen, but that it would also come to an end. The people would come home. The land would be renewed and restored. Their worship would be purified. God would once again inhabit the temple in Jerusalem. A descendant of David would once again sit on the throne and Israel's international influence and power would be restored. 
And yet only a small fraction of that was fulfilled. Some of it came to pass, much of it didn't, and it left the community a little bewildered. They had to rethink some things. What they thought the prophets had stated so clearly wasn't really clear. And they had to adjust their understanding, their interpretation, their expectations of what God was up to. You know, sometimes we think we know exactly how things should work and how life should look, and then things turn out a little different. For post-exilic Israel, this was exactly the case, and they would wrestle with this for generations. Sometimes we need to question our understanding of God and our interpretation of his word and our expectations as we submit to his sovereignty over the world and our lives. Let's read Ezra chapter 1. Let's stand together as we read this text. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem." Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of gold, with, of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. And I'll just go the next couple of verses. Now, there were, <coughs> these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his hometown. This is the word of the Lord. So in the first few verses, we see that the Lord moves the king. The Lord moved a leader to fulfill his word. This was to happen to fulfill the word that Jeremiah had spoken. Jeremiah 29.10 For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed... 
for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah 39, 6-9. Behold, I will bring to it, this is Judah and Jerusalem, health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them of all the guilt of their sin against me. I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. In Isaiah chapter 44 to 45 specifically names Cyrus as the Lord's anointed one. His Messiah actually is the word And all of this lines up with what the author wants to emphasize in Ezra chapter 1. Now when we read Cyrus's decree here, it is through the lens and through the the author's perception of what is going on. Like Cyrus is saying here, the Lord stirred up the spirit of, the author says, the Lord, Yahweh, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, and he said this, the Lord, the God of heaven, Yahweh, and he names Yahweh, well, interestingly, we have this thing that, that, that was found. It's a clay cylinder called the Cyrus Cylinder that actually is an account of Cyrus's coming to power in Babylon. And he gives praise to the god Marduk who has brought him into possession of Babylon and given him possession over all of the kingdoms of the earth, very similar to here, and who has also tasked him to rebuild the houses of all the gods of the peoples who have been conquered. And so there was kind of this this, uh, political policy, you you could say, that Cyrus had that, well, if you worship this god and it came from this town, then you go back to your town and you build the temple of your god. And you came from this area and you worship this god, well, go and, and I will let you rebuild that temple. And by the way, you can all pray to your various gods for me then cover all my bases just in case one of them's true. <clears throat> That's basically Cyrus's theology. He's a polytheistic pagan. Okay? What's written here in Ezra is through the, the lens of the author of Scripture saying this is what God has done through Cyrus. He has that view This move by Cyrus was likely motivated by the need to quell unrest from all the fractured uh, provinces of the Babylonian Empire as it was falling apart. It would win favor with many different peoples and by extension their gods. Again, it was not just the Jewish people who were freed and, and the temple of Yahweh that was to be rebuilt. It was anybody and everyone. But here, the author of Ezra and Nehemiah because it's really one book, sees in this the providential hand of the God of Israel working for his people in accordance with his word. The author sees this as more than a decree from a politically motivated man. He sees it as the hand of God moving the heart of the king. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart 
is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And sometimes that's the view we need to have when we wonder what on earth are our politicians up to. It may be that God is doing something and they don't mean it. They have no intention of following God, but God is at work because he is still sovereign over all kings. So first, the Lord moved, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. Secondly, if you look down in verse five, God stirs up the people, same word. God is working to get people to, to fulfill his word. The Lord roused the people to rebuild his house. And this is the key theme of Ezra and actually Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, the centrality of rebuilding the temple. It's a rebuilding, not just a place, but an institution of worship. This is the main thought. Returning to the land is secondary. Worship of God is primary throughout it all. Not only does God move the heart of Cyrus, he moves the hearts of his people, not all of them, however, not all of them go back at this point. Some do, and there's at least three returns to, to under, under Ezra, uh, here and then later under Ezra actually, and then under Nehemiah, and, and there's different times where God's people come back. But then there's some that don't. See, God not only had to move the king of the land at the time, he had to move the hearts of the Jewish people. Why? You know, given the chance to go home after so long seems a no-brainer, but just think about it for a moment. What had Jeremiah encouraged the people of Israel to do when they were in Babylon? Build houses. Settle down. Work for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. Seventy years, they were probably pretty comfortable. They, they were allowed to gather in communities under Babylon. It wasn't like they just scattered them all over the place hoping they'd just assimilate. They actually kind of had uh, like communities, like if you go to, if you go to uh, Vancouver, like West Vancouver, there's like, there's, there's, sections of it that are very Jewish because you gotta be able to walk to the synagogue on Saturday, right? And so there's very Jewish centers. There's kind of like you've got Chinatown and maybe the Italian center, you know, and you've got these different kind of nationalities grouped in, in like a place like Vancouver. Same thing in Babylon. So lots of people were together. They were living together. In many ways, they were doing well. They had a life, they had businesses, they had homes, they had families. In the absence of the temple, they had reoriented their worship around the study of the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, and established a new way of worship in a synagogue system. Local places of worship within their community, teachers continually studying scripture and applying it to their present reality. Very similar to what we do today. They were not living as oppressed slaves. This wasn't Egypt 2.0. So what would motivate them to leave? We know there were some significant figures who didn't. Nehemiah, Daniel, Esther, just to name a few, and the communities around them. Then later, between about 100 BC and 600 AD, there was a school of rabbis in Babylon 
who began writing commentary, one of the most influential commentaries in all Judaism called the Babylonian Talmud. And so a lot of them stayed and they thrived. There was a lot to keep people from returning, so God had to move their hearts. He had to rouse his people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Quick note on verse six, notice this. So, so he rouses the people to go and rebuild, and not everyone went. And then all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, gold, and with goods and beasts and all this other stuff. And it kind of sounds like, you know, in, in the Exodus when the Egyptians would, would give them all this stuff and, and they would despoil the Egyptians. It, it's kind of familiar to that and it may have happened a little bit that way, but I think naturally within the context, there's another thing going on here. Not everyone's heart was moved to go back to Jerusalem. Some people stayed in Babylon and fulfilled God's purposes for them while they remained in Babylon. And so staying wasn't actually an act of disobedience. Again, Ezra 1.5 specifies a select group called to a specific task. The people who stayed in Babylon were not disobedient to God's moving. They would have done, they would have been in disobedience had they gone and God had not moved them to go. And so I think in chapter, in verse six there, what's happening is that the neighborhood in which these people say, we really feel God is calling us to go back to Jerusalem and take part in rebuilding the temple. Their neighbors, fellow Jews, supplied them for the trip. Not very different from missionaries today and our role in supporting them. Not everyone's called to go and rebuild the temple or to build the kingdom in another part of the world. Sometimes it's right here. And sometimes our job is to support it in prayer and in finances. See, obedience to God isn't uniform. My obedience to God's purposes may look very different than how he is leading you. Yours is gonna look different than mine. We find no prophetic word of judgment against those who stayed in Babylon. God moved the heart of Cyrus and the hearts of a group of Jewish people to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and God worked through a pagan polytheistic government and through a committed group of believers to accomplish his purposes and bring his word to fulfillment. He moved the heart of the king. He roused the hearts of his people. And the last thing we're going to look at today is the Lord restored the families to their homes. Verse 1 of chapter 2. These people go back and they go back each to his own town. And then there's a long genealogy. Isn't that something that you just kind of skim over? All right, the whole rest of the chapter is numbers and names and it's like, I don't get this. Why is it here? Ugh, move along. But these are important because these are names and these are people and these are families. And they're taking a long journey. It would take about four months to travel from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Four months on the road. Imagine that. I wonder how many they lost along the way. 
You know, in, in uh, Haggai, there's this one verse where Haggai says, hey, you've started building the temple, that's great. And this is decades after they got there. And he says, some of you saw Solomon's temple. Is this now nothing? There were some older people on this journey too. Families traveling for months to get to where God led them. In the return from the exile to rebuild the temple of Yahweh, literally his house, the Lord also allows people to return to their houses. And now here's something I've been pondering the last few weeks. What did they come home to? In the Exodus, God called them to the promised land. And he said things like, you're going to live in houses you didn't build and you're going to eat from trees you didn't plant and the land is flowing with milk and honey. But what about now after the exile? To put it bluntly, that is not what they came home to this time around. Relocation back to Judah was not easy and it was not without pain and it was not without loss for these people. They were leaving well-established lives and communities in Babylon. They were leaving stability and abundance for a land that was desolate and houses and cities that were destroyed. And God led them to it. Hmm. The prophets had said the return would be glorious and wonderful. The reality on the ground was anything but. The return from exile brought them face to face with the rubble and the consequences of a people that had walked away from God's word and his truth. The return meant dealing with the brokenness they would find at home. God didn't magically rebuild the temple and he didn't magically rebuild their homes. He didn't miraculously make fields abound. The return from exile meant doing hard work and rebuilding everything from rubble. And this is unfortunately often how life works. We don't like it, but there it is. God calls us, he stirs our hearts to his purposes and in fulfilling and following him, he leads us face to face into our brokenness and our dysfunction and the rebuilding of our lives requires painful hard work and sorting through the rubble and the destruction and beginning to build one brick at a time that which was destroyed. Sometimes following God is extremely painful. It's good and it's right and it's fulfilling, but it's also painful. We'd like to leave this chapter with God moved the hearts of the king. God provided wealth for them. God moved in the hearts of his people to rebuild his temple. But that isn't the whole picture. The picture that's the picture we want, but it's not the reality we need. Sometimes God's moving in our hearts, even though his provision in our lives leads us to the opportunity to leave what is comfortable and safe and predictable, <clears throat> to take a long and dangerous journey, 
takes us right back to the place of brokenness and desolation in our lives that we would rather forget existed. But it's always there. You think they didn't know that when they left? We know it's there. We know that's in our lives and in our hearts. No matter how good of a mask we put on every time we leave the house, And it eats away at our joy, it robs us of our hope, and it saps our love for God and others, leaving us emotionally frozen, relationally distant if we don't face it. Our worship becomes duty and our service a chore and our giving an obligation. God's restoring families to their homes, but he's not doing it to ignore the brokenness of the past but to lead them to it so they can begin rebuilding. And in a very literal way, one stone on one stone on one stone. And it was going to take time. And it would, you read the rest of Ezra, Nehemiah, read Haggai and Zechariah, there would be pushback, there would be struggle, there would be wanting to give up. Because the job was hard. What if in this next year you're being called by God into something new and unfamiliar? God moved the heart of a pagan king and a settled people to do something specific for his glory. To see that through, these people had to uproot their families and make a significant sacrifice. And sometimes that's what God calls us to do. And he doesn't promise to make it easy. He calls us actually back to our brokenness because often the glory of God is most revealed revealed where our lives have been the most damaged. And it takes time and a lot of trust in God that he is still working all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes. In the middle of the ruins and the rubble, we have trouble seeing the work that God is doing and what he's building and the good he is purposing. And perhaps in 2023, there is a rebuilding project that God is calling you to embark on and it won't be easy and it may cost you a lot. It may involve going back in your life to a place of ruin and rubble and doing the hard work of rebuilding that which was lost and damaged. But if God is moving in your heart, don't hesitate to follow his leading. He won't make it easy and he won't make it painless. He doesn't promise that. But he will provide guidance and companionship on the way towards rebuilding. It may not seem like you're making much progress, but we don't know how far-reaching our actions and decisions may reverberate in God's plans for his glory. If you know where God is calling you today, step out and take the risk. You know, I'm sure there were people who thought the return to Judah and the rebuilding of the temple would mean a return to the glory days of Israel. Now, that's what Jeremiah was promising. The glory days of Israel under David and Solomon, there was good biblical warrant for this hope. However, the journey toward it was very different. Because from the return from exile to the destruction of Jerusalem again in AD 70, the kingship was never restored. The international prestige was never realized. Things didn't turn out the way they believed they would. 
You see, when they rebuilt that temple under Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra, and Nehemiah, that cloud of glory that filled the tabernacle at the end of Exodus and the cloud of glory that filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it didn't reappear. The Ark of the Covenant was long lost. The cloud of the presence was no more. Nothing like what Exodus and the temple were about came true. But then in around AD 2 or 3, a very young couple with a newborn baby entered a rebuilt temple still under construction and an aged Simeon and Anna beheld the consolation of Israel in the infant Jesus Christ. Later, this same child, 30 years later, would enter the temple and would declare that if it was destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days. And of course, they took it literally, but he meant something quite different. And so when Mary and Joseph came to the temple with baby Jesus, something monumental happened, though everyone else missed it. And when the word made flesh declared himself as the temple rebuilt, something more was being said. The manifest presence of God was no longer confined to a building. It was now embodied in a person. And God was doing something far beyond what we could ask or think or imagine when he sent Jesus Christ. What is God calling you to this year? What are the challenges that you may be facing? Some of you already know that there's challenges coming. There's already struggles. There's already sickness. There's already declining health. There's things we know that are coming that we're not going to enjoy. And then are those things that we know are come we don't know that are coming. But we need to meet them anyway. What is God calling you to be and do this year? Through it all, He will be with you. He will rouse the hearts of his people for his glory and for his purposes. May we walk in obedience to what he calls us to be and do. As we close today, I want you to just close your eyes and hear the words of Psalm 139. 1 to 12. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Verse 9 and 10. Hear this again, because I think some of us really need to hear it. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, it's like the, the, the furthest extremes, even there, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Lord, we come to this new year and every new year we have an anticipation that it'll be better than the last. And we hope and we pray for that, and yet we don't know what this next year is going to bring. But we know that no matter how high and awesome it is or how low and difficult it is, your hand will hold us. Your hand will hold us. And you will be there. We can't get away from your presence. We can't flee from you. And so, Lord, help us to be mindful of your ever-presence with us. Stir our hearts toward that which will bring you glory and further your kingdom in our day and in our generation, and in the places you have put us, whether in our jobs or in our schools, with whatever you have laid before us in this season of our lives, Lord, may we seek to walk in obedience to what you have put on our hearts for your glory and our good and the good of those around us. Lord, thank you for the fact that you walk with us no matter what we go through. So, Lord, now as we enter into this new year, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church in this time. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the benediction. Actually, I'm going to steal something here. Oh, the children took it. We don't need a guitar for this. <clears throat> it is well with my soul. Let's just sing the first, first verse in the chorus. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my life.
able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever and all God's people said amen, amen. 